Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's April 17th. 1968, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. As the old rhyme goes, London Bridge really was falling down when today in history back in 1968, authorities made the not terribly difficult decision to sell it off. After all, by then, it wasn't really much to look at, in part because it had been bombed a bit during the war and it was also slowly sinking into the River Thames. But who would want to buy a bridge in such a state? Well, as it turns out, a flamboyant American oil tycoon named Robert P. McCulloch, who later joked to reporters, I needed the bridge, but even if I didn't, I might have bought it anyway. Yes, it was today in history that London City Council accepted the winning bid of $2.4 million, $2,460,000 to sell London Bridge, the actual (laughs) London Bridge, brick by brick and send it over to Arizona. Uh, where it still resides to this day in Lake Havasu City. Yeah, and I mean, the kind of person you're describing, indeed it was McCulloch, was exactly the sort of person that you would imagine would buy a decrepit London bridge. (laughs) You know, he was this colourful oil tycoon who wanted to have a little piece of history. And this was exactly what London Councillor Ivan Lukin was imagining when he came up with this idea. You know, work on the modern-day London Bridge had begun in 1967, and it was obviously going to be a very costly project, and dismantling and getting rid of the existing bridge was a huge project in itself. So Luckin had this idea, sell it. And he went to New York on like a publicity tour to market the bridge. He laid it on very thick for the Yanks, it has to be said. He said... It is the heir to 2,000 years of history going back to the 1st century AD, to the time of Roman Londinium. (laughs) Yeah, that in response to a question which actually said, but hold on, it's not the one from the nursery, right? I mean, that's the funny thing, (laughs) that there actually have been some good incarnations of London Bridge along the way, specifically the one that was built in around 1209 during the reign of King John. Oh, yeah, good good bridge, that one. Good solid bridge. That old medieval one was like the Ponte Vecchio in Florence with, like, houses and businesses built on top of it. It actually looked really beautiful. But this is just a straight-up standard bridge that McCulloch got sent to him, as Ollie says, brick by brick, and taken across the oceans to be set up in this new part of Arizona that was really sort of meant to be hinging on the quality of the bridge that McCulloch was bringing across. Yes, but it's all about context, isn't it? You know, yes, this is an unremarkable bridge compared to other bridges in 1960s London. Yes, its age is unremarkable. I mean, it was only 130 years old at this point. I mean, my house is 130 years old. No one cares Mm. around here. But if you're building a new city, as you say, in the States, something that's 130 years old with heritage, something which, you know, even if it isn't the classic London Bridge, nonetheless was in the location of the sole crossing of the Thames until the construction of Putney Bridge in 1729. Mm-hmm. You can't buy that kind of history, well, you can, on this very rare occasion. <laughs> so, I mean, you can sort of see from, from the perspective of Americans trying to build up a tourist attraction in their city, this was a unique opportunity. 
Yeah, it now sits in the middle of the Arizona desert in Lake Havasu City, flanked by retail parks and an English village, basically just like a collection of really half-assed mock Tudor huts. They're housing like beachwear shops and a pizzeria. I think maybe the shops had started off yeah. with more of an English theme that has diluted over time. I'll tell you how they get it slightly wrong in America when they theme things as English. It's too <laughs> nice. Yeah, this needs <laughs> centuries of dirt. <laughs> yeah. That clash is so evident when you look at London Bridge in its, you know, in its current location in Lake Havasu City. You know, if you look in the background, it's got yeah. palm trees, it's got desert, you can see mountains behind. And the artificiality is really emphasised by the fact that there was actually yes. no water there during its construction. The town itself is on the Colorado River, but the Colorado River is huge. It's way too wide for the bridge to have spanned it. So it was assembled on dry land. And then afterwards, they dug a canal to sort of channel part of the river through basically severing what's called Pittsburgh Point and had been a peninsula. Now it's an island in the Colorado River because of this artificial canal they dug just so that the bridge would have something to go over. Yeah, one Lake Havasu resident, Bobby Holmes, said most people build bridges to cross a river. McCulloch built a river under a bridge. And that's exactly what he did. He just went out and got this bridge knowing that it was going to be this tourist draw and then went into the business of constructing this whole waterway to kind of justify the bridge being there in the first place. But compared to the outlay of founding a whole city in the first place, you know, Lake Havasu City's only there at all because he'd purchased thousands of acres of land near Lake Havasu and founded a community there. It's actually small fry, isn't it? You know, $1.2 million to buy the bridge, another one point two to transport it, when you think that this will finally give you a reason for people to actually come to the city you're building. And from that point of view, it did work. I mean, still now yeah. on the Arizona tourist website for Lake Havasu City, and bear in mind, this is the state that has the Grand Canyon in it, quote, etchings in a granite block of the London Bridge transport you to a moment between two soldiers in World War II, it says. You know, a bit of old graffiti, <laughs> it would be completely unremarkable in London, is a draw over there. Still the case. Yeah. And also the way that he inaugurated it was with this mega festival where he had a huge ceremony and skydivers and fireworks and marching bands and hot air balloons. And he had a banquet that served lobster and roast beef, which was the exact same meal that had been served to the king during the bridge's initial unveiling in 1831. <laughs> Plus, yeah, he then brought over London's Lord Mayor dressed in his black ceremonial robes and he then had... The celebrities he could get his hands on were Robert Mitchum and Dan Rowan. And that was like the Hollywood pizzazz that he managed to add to the proceedings. Yeah, there's a New York Times report from the time that really sets up that contrast between Sir Peter Studd, the Lord Mayor of London, in his black ceremonial robes and sword bearer, also in traditional costumes, standing next to Arizona Governor Jack Williams, who wore a white Stetson and was accompanied by the University of Arizona <laughs> marching band. The report describes how they, quote, Pulled on a red silk ribbon, they set off a fantastic grab bag of gimmicks, thousands of multicoloured balloons, hundreds of white pigeons, skydivers rockets and a hot air balloon dragging a huge papier-mâché dove behind it. I guess that shows that this event was the product of two people, two men, who really understood the value of a press stunt. McCulloch, who had built his fortune with a very simple idea, the first one-man chainsaw. That's how he'd made his money. Um, and as the you lonely man's chainsaw. <laughs> as you were mentioning earlier, uh, Larkin, who, yes, was a councillor in London, but before that, because he was in his 60s by this point, had owned an advertising company and travelled regularly to the States on business. And he understood 
when everyone else around him in the city of London had absolute scorn for his idea that he would sell London Bridge, understood mm. that there would be a buyer for it out there. Um, because he used to be the city editor of the Daily Telegraph. Like, he understood what would make a good story, and it is a great story. It's a good press well, but, stunt, this. But even so, according to Travis Elbra, who wrote a book called London Bridge in America, The Tall Story of a Transatlantic Crossing, he wrote that the empire had fallen and America emerged as the new post-war superpower. This idea that Americans could now come over and buy our old bridges or huge chunks of Britain hit a nerve. And you sort of feel this sense that like this extravagant wealth that was able to kind of go, well, this is what the price of just get getting rid of the thing is going to be I'll just double that and throw in a bit extra because I'm like incredibly wealthy I don't care plus the UK's sense of its own declining power might have had people back in London not wanting Luckin to be successful on the basis that they'd much rather scrap the bridge than see it go over and opened with a gaudy ceremony featuring double decker red buses (laughs) it's, it's Barnum buying jumbo again isn't it Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But don't fall into the trap of thinking that he somehow, that this savvy businessman somehow was like hoodwinked into buying the wrong London Bridge, because that is a myth, isn't it? Which is a really popular myth that I've been told by everyone from like cab drivers to, you know, members of my own family had told me before I looked into this. Oh, yeah, that's the new London Bridge that was built in the 60s. The one before that was sold to some geezer in America who thought he was buying Tower Bridge. No, yes. like there's no evidence he thought he was buying Tower. But there was a, like you said, there was a press conference. There was a prospectus. There were detailed discussions <laughs> about logistics. I'm sure he'd seen a picture of it. He didn't think he was buying Tower Bridge. But in Britain, partly because of, I guess, that, that resentment you were saying, that weariness, that ickiness that people felt about giving it away to this brash American, maybe because of that, there was this rumour that spread all across London that... Oh, some idiot from America has bought the wrong bridge. <laughs> that said, looking at some of the negative TripAdvisor reviews from disappointed visitors... Oh, visitors it's think it's very Tower Bridge. Clear sure, that yeah. It's a very easy mistake to make. Yeah. yeah. One wrote, and I really enjoy someone who has obviously taken the time to... They said, wait a minute, I'm going to calm down before I write my TripAdvisor review. And then <laughs> choked out the following... I accept that this bridge has some historical interest due to it having been moved from London to Lake Havasu. However, other than that, it is a very ordinary looking bridge. Yeah. Mind you, we don't want to paint McCulloch as some sort of like business genius whose every single gamble did pay off because one of his other far-fetched business schemes uh, before his death in 1977 was a helicopter-like gyroplane as a commuter vehicle. <laughs> but um, I like it. managed to live that one through. I mean, I, I, I like it. I just don't think it's the future of transport necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow. He traps the boss of a mine in the mine until he commits to making it safer for his workers. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.